on today's episode of Mile Higher. Today, we're going to be covering the Twilight Killers. Kim Rose Edwards was born on June 13th, 2001 in England to her mother, Elizabeth Edwards. The family dynamics in the Edwards home definitely had some issues. Kim always felt like her mother favored Katie. I mean, just the impulsivity of her hearing that Lucas casually says, what if I kill your mom? And she's just like, wait a second, that's a great idea. I see two dangerous individuals that getting out in their 30s, I would be worried for the public. I do believe in rehabilitation. I don't think the two of them should spend the rest of their lives in prison. When you show no remorse and you say the things that she said, mm -hmm. that's very concerning to me. I was getting rid of the only problem I could see. I was not killing my sister out of anger and I miss her, but I was excited about killing my mother and I was looking forward to it. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 268. Today, we are going to be diving into a case here that has been dubbed the Twilight Killers by the media. Yes, this is out of the UK as well. It's mm -hmm. been a while since we've went across the pond. Yeah, yeah. Normally, we struggle with the pronunciations across the pond. But we're going to do a good job today. Yes, we, we made sure we know how to say these names correctly. How come every place over there, there's so many shirts. Yeah. I always thought it was Shire. I always did too. Because, you know, Lord of the Rings. how my brain works, but it's not how you pronounce it. Mm -mm. So We'll get it right, though. Yeah. Although we don't have Julia here today to help us if mm. we make something, if we miss something. So we'll see. Julia's out of town, unfortunately. I know you guys like having her commentary, which, by the way, Thank you guys for all the great feedback um, for Julia. We love it's Julia. Meant a lot. We love Julia. She's amazing. We do. She's a great addition to the show. But, but anyway. Charlie's happy this week. At least he gets to sit by me like the olden oh, days. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It is like the olden days, Charles. Well, yes. Today we're going to be covering the Twilight Killers. And these two remind me so much of a case that we've covered recently. The murder of Sheila Von Wies. Yes, Heather Mack and yep. Tommy Schaefer. Yep. Killers in that one. Mm -hmm. This is another minor, minors that are killers mm -hmm. case. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's definitely gonna be a lot of discussion around what is just justice for mm -hmm. the victims when it comes to minors who've murdered. I mean, it's a tough decision. It's a tough discussion. It is. I don't really know what the right answers are. But yeah, people have various opinions on that one mm -hmm. for sure. We'll want to hear from you but yeah we're gonna be talking about kim edwards and lucas markham but before we get started we do have a bit of an announcement a bit of a change that is happening here on mile higher and we know how much you guys hate change <laughs> every time we make any slight change people wig out at us and you know we understand that you like things the way that they are and sometimes in life things just have to change a little bit and that's okay which there's a good reason for this change, yes, right? Yes, yes. And, you know, you can you can blame me for it if you want. Yes, I this is not my this call. pushing change the most. Sure, I'll take the blame. Yeah, I'll take you the blame, too. too. Yeah. You too. Yeah, we're we're doing a little schedule switch around for our shows. Actually, all three, well, Lights Out is staying the same. Yes. My channel's moving to Tuesdays. Sash is moving to Wednesdays. 
And Mile Higher is now going to be uploaded on Thursdays. So a day later than you guys are used to getting it. And I know that that, I know that that sucks. And I sympathize with those of you who are used to Mile Higher on Wednesday. It's been that way for a long time. But like I said, change is good. And just keep in mind that, you know, we have so many things going on. There's reasons we make every little change we do. We have a team of, there's 11 of us now. Mm-hmm. And to work with everyone's schedule and to make sure that everyone is has comfortable and it has to... time. This is just the way it had to be. So again, well, and also sorry. you guys cover a lot of current events on the sash, yeah. so it makes more sense from the time you guys record to the time you upload that mm-hmm. it gets up we in need a, to shorten that a little, little shorten bit. it down a little bit. But we so. also need a little extra time for mile higher because it's it's a big project. Yes, yes. So that's that. And thank you for your support in advance. And I'm sorry also in advance if you are unhappy. I tried, guys. I tried very hard. So I feel for you out there. Come on. No, okay. Okay. I'm on your side. No, you can fully blame oh, me for it. I'll take all the blame. No, but you're right. It, we have a lot of, of mm-hmm. things in the air. I mean, you probably couldn't even imagine how difficult it is to produce multiple podcasts plus a or, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm and that's also a podcast right right yeah. there's just there's a lot of and we're all involved in them and that's what makes it so difficult is that mm-hmm. kennel and i are in, in pretty much every production we produce so all of them yes so yeah so it's it's a lot harder to make it all work and get it all out on time and you know we want to make sure that we're always producing the utmost quality and give mm-hmm. our our team members adequate time to to get the job done so that's really the main reason behind it but mm-hmm. But thank you for coming along on this journey with us. We appreciate mm-hmm. every single one of you. And Mile Higher is on Thursdays now. <laughs> Mile Higher Thursdays. And if you want to tune in for the premiere on YouTube and watch it live, in a sense. It's not live, but that's how yeah, YouTube refers to it. Yeah, people always think it's live. It's not. It's just a live chat happening while it's playing. And it is it is premiering, so you are the first to see it at right. that time. Right. And you can't like skip towards the end. It's it's playing in one live. So it's it's like a movie premiere cool and everyone who joins that thank you so much we love chatting with you guys every week it's really fun um but, but yeah. yeah let's wow we're in sync there today <laughs> we are but yeah let's dive into this case okay this, this is just i mean it's mind-blowing it's, it's it's definitely brutal as well two. it's more yeah. a little bit more brutal than what mm-hmm. we typically cover here on on mile mm-hmm. higher but it's definitely one that that needs to be talked about so shall we get into it So Kimberly, or Kim, Rose Edwards was born on June 13th, 2001 in England to her mother, Elizabeth Edwards. Her father left the family when she was only two years old, and the Edwards lived in Spalding, Lincolnshire, England. Their house was at 5 Dawson Avenue, and it sat in a quiet cul-de-sac. But before we talk about Kim, we want to start by talking about her mother, Elizabeth, and her younger sister, Katie. So Kim's mother, Elizabeth Edwards, was 49 at the time of these events, and she was originally from Edinburgh. She worked as a dinner lady at St. Paul's Primary School in Spalding in the U.S. and Canada, known as a lunch lady. And because of her work, she was well-known and well-liked in the town. She was dating a man named Graham Green and had a mixed-breed puppy named Belle that she absolutely adored. Elizabeth was known as a very friendly person. She attended church often. She was very involved in her community. She was always smiling and happy, just like her daughter, Katie, who was 13 at the time of these events, so just a year younger than Kim. Katie and Elizabeth were both well-liked. Katie was quiet, but she was described as lovely, popular, and a carefree girl. 
Katie was best friends with a girl named Elena, and they were very close. They considered each other to be sisters. And Elena said that Elizabeth was like a second mother to her. They had a very deep friendship, and they called each other Elmo and Cookie Monster, which is really, really sweet. Kim and Katie had a half-older sister named Mary Cottingham, who lived in Derby with her husband and her children. Mary was very close with her mother and kept in regular contact with her younger sisters as well. The family dynamics in the Edwards home definitely had some issues. Kim always felt like her mother favored Katie. She said that this apparent favoritism had been going on since she was a kid. And according to Kim, since she was little, she'd never gotten along with her mom. It's also not super clear whether or not Katie and Kim have the same father. We do know that Katie's father is named Peter Edwards, and we don't know what the extent of Katie's relationship was with him. A lot of the issues Kim had with her mom stemmed from January of 2006. One day, Kim and Elizabeth got into a fight over the TV, and Elizabeth ended up punching Kim in the face. At the time, Kim was six years old. Elizabeth ended up turning herself into social services after the incident, and as a result, the state placed Kim and Katie in foster care for several months. Eventually, they were returned to Elizabeth's care, and social services closed their file on the family. But Elizabeth felt like Kim never fully, truly forgave her for the incident, and this led to a long history of resentment and issues between the two of them. Kim grew up to be a troubled girl. She frequently ended up at the behavioral unit of her high school, Sir John Gleed School. In September of 2013, these issues came back, and this led to a three-year period of significant problems. At this time, Elizabeth told Kim's teachers that she was planning on running away from home. But whatever had happened, by March of 2014, Elizabeth told Kim's teachers that their relationship had improved, but unfortunately this didn't last long, and eventually things went south again in the household. Eight months later, Kim contacted support workers and claimed that her mother had tried to strangle her. Both Elizabeth and Katie, Kim's sister, denied that this ever took place. Later in January of 2015, Elizabeth contacted her general practitioner and asked to have family counseling set up. Within a few weeks, Elizabeth had set up an emergency psychiatric appointment for Kim, as she had found a suicide note in her room. Their half-sister Mary said that life in the family home after that was peaceful from everything she heard. Both girls were doing well in school and were happy, but all that changed again in May of 2015 when Kim got a new boyfriend, another 14-year-old boy named Lucas Markham. Kim and Lucas met at school in 2013, and Kim was walking into a classroom just as Lucas was throwing a chair across the room. For whatever reason, that was attractive to Kim, but they didn't begin a relationship until May 2015. Both were 14-year-olds who bonded over having suicidal thoughts, and if it wasn't already clear from the chair throwing, Lucas had some behavioral issues as well. He was aggressive, and he had to be isolated from other students because he kept on attacking them. Now, the two of them quickly formed a very intense and toxic relationship. Kim said that she felt happy for once with Lucas and that she'd never felt so close with someone before. She said that they shared, quote, the same attitude to life. Now, Lucas had a very troubled background, a very sad story, honestly. His dad drank heavily, and there was a lot of domestic violence that took place in his house when he was young, and that led to him and his brother being sent to foster care. So the two of them, you know, bonded over that. They were eventually taken in by their aunt, and shortly after this, his mother sadly died of leukemia. But Elizabeth did not like the fact that Kim was seeing Lucas at all. She described them as a ticking time bomb waiting to go off. 
The relationship between Lucas and Kim reminded Elizabeth of her relationship with Kim's father. And that's because Elizabeth's ex-husband was addicted to drugs and abusive towards her. So Elizabeth had to spend some time in women's shelters. Mary agreed that the pair seemed to be a ticking time bomb. Right away, Mary knew that there was something about Lucas that she just didn't like. He seemed like trouble. And Mary tried warning Kim to be careful and shared her concerns about Lucas, but Kim just ignored her. Elizabeth called up Mary a lot to talk about Kim and Lucas. She said that ever since Kim started seeing him, she became more and more withdrawn from her friends and family. It was pretty clear to everyone that Elizabeth did not approve of this relationship at all. But despite Elizabeth having these concerns about Kim, in August of 2015, Youth Mental Health Services noted that the relationship between she and Elizabeth had improved. However, they did note that Kim was feeling like she was the odd one out in the house, that she was feeling left out, and that she was jealous of her sister's relationship with her mother. Again, the progress that they made seemed to quickly regress, and Elizabeth tried to forbid Kim from seeing Lucas. But as you can imagine, that completely enraged her. She claimed that around this time, her life became, quote, like a living, walking hell. Kim continued to see Lucas anyway, and the two would secretly meet in the Edwards' back garden. In October of 2015, Kim ended up running away with Lucas. Missing persons reports were issued for both of them, and the local media sent out alerts to be on the lookout. The two were missing for six days before they were found by police. They had been discovered sleeping rough in the woods north of Spalding, which if you're not familiar with the sleeping rough expression, it's British and it means just sleeping out in the open with no protection from the elements. After Lucas came back to school, the other students teased him. He became a lot more withdrawn and less noisy and disruptive. He really just turned into a loner who only hung out with Kim. He was never really a popular student to begin with. One classmate said that he was one of the most hated kids in school for how aggressive and weird he was. His classmates say that he would do anything Kim asked. That and he hated Elizabeth. He talked about killing her before she banned Kim from seeing him. But after that, he talked about it a whole lot more. His classmates thought that he was all talk, though. Eventually, Lucas ended up getting expelled from school. Kim's estranged father also tried contacting her around this time, so there were two big stressors in her life at this point. In March of 2016, Kim attempted suicide by taking an overdose of painkillers, and she had to be rushed to the hospital. Luckily, Kim survived, and after this incident, Elizabeth set up counseling for the whole family. But the situation only got worse. On April 6, Kim and her mom got into a big fight. According to Kim, Elizabeth told her that she was going to turn out like her father. Kim decided to go to Lucas's house that night, and the two barricaded themselves in Lucas's room for the entire night. When Kim returned home to get a birth control pill, she found that her mother had bagged up some of her things. That, and she'd given some of Kim's things to Katie. This was basically the final straw in Kim's mind. She felt like she did not belong in the family anymore, and she didn't want to live if it had to be living with her mother. Kim wanted a way out of her situation completely. She felt that there was only one thing left to do. And that's when she and Lucas created the diabolical plan to kill not just her mother Elizabeth, but also her sister Katie too. The plot was set up just days after Kim's latest fight with Elizabeth. And one day in the Edwards back garden, Lucas joked to Kim that he wished he could kill her mom. But Kim didn't take it as a joke. She told Lucas that she wanted him to actually do it. And from there, they began their intense planning on April 9th over a hearty meal at McDonald's. So obviously, that's a pretty wild thing to picture. Two teenagers plotting 
two murders over a McDonald's meal. And it's just so sad to think about, you know, how underdeveloped your brain is at that point where you don't realize that you don't have that much more time to live in your house and to go to such extremes, right? Right. Four years really from being an adult legally Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where you can just leave home and not have to put up with you know, your family anymore if you don't and it's want to. That, obviously, this is an extreme, but it's that teenage mindset where you feel like you have to do something now and not realizing the consequences of taking such Yeah, that's what I was just going to say is that there's no mention or talk of, well, if we do this, what are the repercussions? Like, what's mm-hmm. going to happen to us? Like, there's no thought behind if we kill Katie and Elizabeth, mm-hmm. What does their life look like after that? Yeah. Like clearly they want to be together and that's like one of their mm-hmm. big reasons for it. And they want they don't want to be controlled anymore or told not to be together. But at the same time, if you commit this heinous crime, you're gonna be split up anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's just a complete lack of And for them to not understand the detrimental effects of killing someone, especially yes, family the permanent members. Effects of that. Right. Yeah. And obviously we don't know what their conversation at McDonald's entailed we have no record of that but yeah it doesn't seem like there was much thought into what's going to happen next and no it was like they're just thinking about the immediate moment yeah how like do we, we get them out of the way now the situation now yeah mm-hmm. we should be good right yeah and not like oh people are going to wonder what happened to them and mm-hmm. we're going to be arrested and do you remember having obviously not thoughts like this but ex- ex- thoughts that where you didn't really think things out fully or focusing on the short term in your own life versus how things are going to play out in the long run or feeling that you have so much time left of still being a teenager and still being controlled and feeling frustrated with that situation not to bring you to that type of extreme or anything like that but you know what i'm saying like, yeah. or did you know people i knew people that took actions that were so permanent and so extreme situations that were temporary right i think one of the hardest things about being a teenager is like your concept of time is Mm -hmm. and just being a kid your concept of time is completely different from what what it actually is in reality and as an adult time seems to move very quickly but as a kid it moves so slow so when you think about four years as a kid i mean that's like all of high school or or whatever it may be and so it seems like this long long period of time within the grand scheme of things is is very very short mm-hmm. and so i think because you're you're you just lack experience in life as well as like you just aren't able to to really comprehend how little time there is you know until you're really out of the house and on your own but yeah no i know personally for me there's definitely moments when when i was in my teenage years where i contemplating contemplated doing pretty pretty serious stuff like i thought about and this is probably not really related to this case but i thought about getting a throat tattoo and almost really like got this like i really wanted a dragon under my chin mm-hmm. but then i thought about it more and luckily you were there i mean you were you were there when i, I was remember 18. that one well i never brought it up with you because i knew you would freak but but i obviously this is very different but, but we're trying but yeah, to illustrate the impulsivity it's a permanent thing mm-hmm. i mean a tattoo is a permanent thing for the most part so you don't really think about you're really in this headspace of it's kind of nice because as an adult you're like oh it's we're always thinking about the future and but as a kid and a teenager you're thinking about the present moment 
yeah. and how you're going to feel right now if I do this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to feel better about myself right now, yeah. not thinking about how's that going to impact me as an adult? Are people going to look at me differently? Is it going to affect my ability to get a job? Things like that. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, issues with parents and things like that. There were times where I could have escalated things to the next level. And luckily, I was smart enough and level-headed enough where I was able to be like, Josh, that's not a good idea. Don't do that because ultimately that's going to affect you down the road. And so that stopped me from doing it. But I definitely see how things yeah. can get to this point. Just like your brain at that point is so, yeah, it's really lacking in that whole understanding and awareness of the actions that you take. And that's why these cases are so interesting and so different than other cases than when you know two people are over the age of 18 well i think you have to look at it differently when talking about children especially 14 15 year olds mm -hmm. and somebody who's 20 21 even mm -hmm. i think there's oh, there's, a, there's a difference, difference. in yeah. maturity and a difference in your life experience mm -hmm. at that point that comes into play because at that point you should have been through enough life that you've experienced some of the repercussions mm -hmm. in the adult world that you know this is not not a good idea yeah people still do it but i think your understanding is a little bit better at that point i mean just the impulsivity of her hearing that lucas casually says what if i kill your mom and she's just like wait a second that's a great idea let's go to mcdonald's and hatch out this plan right now you know it's just it's hard it's so to even wrap your mind their, around it's so simple in their minds mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like oh here's the solution we just take them out. And this is where things start to get really dark. Just a, a warning here. But the plan was to kill Kim's mother, Elizabeth, so that they could be together. And they would also have to kill Katie, too, who was only 13 at this point, so that she you know, wouldn't call the police. And originally, they planned on slitting Elizabeth and Katie's throats and then killing themselves so that nobody could split them up. And Kim later told a psychiatrist, quote, I was getting rid of the only problem I could see. I thought it would have been better for my sister to die too. I was not killing my sister out of anger and I miss her, but I was excited about killing my mother and I was looking forward to it. It's hard to even put yourself in that mindset, you know? Kim and Lucas plotted to kill her family one night while they were sleeping. In the middle of the night, she would let Lucas through a window and he would bring along knives and commit the murders. They specifically planned to slit their throats to prevent them from screaming. They also consulted one of their schoolmates, a boy named Adam, as they planned these murders. Adam's father was actually murdered when he was a kid. And he had no idea that Kim and Lucas were so interested in hearing about it because they were planning a murder of their own. Adam had heard Kim mention that she wished her mother dead before, but he, you know, hadn't thought much of it. Adam's father was killed by a group of kids who were trying to break into their backyard. Lucas and Kim were particularly interested in the verdict. One of the teens who killed Adam's dad pleaded guilty, but the other five were acquitted. Again, Lucas had been expelled from school, and that meant they couldn't plot the murders on school grounds, but the plans were still very much in motion. They tried to carry out this plan twice before, on April 11th and April 12th, but both nights, the plan failed because Kim fell asleep and didn't let Lucas in the house. And during this week, the Edwards neighbors said that they heard arguments and the sounds of glass smashing. There's nothing more stressful 
than the holiday rush to mail and ship your packages, whether it's for you personally or for your business. Because as we know, those lines at the post office and really anywhere you ship packages just get super long and it's just such a waste of time. Well, stamps.com has been helping businesses like mine and yours save time and money for 25 years and it can help you get ready for the holiday ramp up. You know, with all the orders coming in for the holiday sales, it's very easy to get backed up on your shipping. Let stamps.com help you out by saving you time and tons of money because all you need is stamps.com's premium rates for all of your postage needs. What I love about stamps.com is it's your own personal post office. You don't have to go anywhere. You can do everything you need to do right from the comfort of your home office your business or anywhere really that you have a computer and a printer. They'll even send you a free scale so you'll have everything you need to get started. So let stamps.com help you save money this holiday season. Plus they automatically tell you the cheapest and fastest shipping options. For 25 years, stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses, including mine. Get access to the USPS and UPS services you need right from your computer anytime, day or night, no lines, no traffic, no waiting. Get all of your packages sent out or cheaper right now. Get your business ready for the holiday rush and get started with stamps.com today. Sign up with promo code MileHire for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage in a free digital scale. There's no long-term commitments or contracts to try it out. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MileHire. All one word. The pair would attempt to go through with their plan a third time on the night of April 13, 2016. This time, Kim stayed awake and she would be able to let Lucas in. Lucas walked the 30 minutes it took to get from his place to Kim's under complete darkness, carrying a bag containing four kitchen knives. Once he reached the house, he climbed up to the upstairs bathroom window and knocked three times. This was the signal the couple arranged in advance. Kim let Lucas in and he quietly climbed into the house. He asked if she was sure she wanted to go through with this, and Kim told him that she was. The original plan was for Kim to kill Katie while Lucas killed Elizabeth. But Kim told Lucas that she couldn't kill her sister. So he told her not to worry about it. He would take care of it himself. Both Katie and Elizabeth were sleeping soundly in their bedrooms. Lucas took out one of the knives and crept into Elizabeth's room. Kim sat behind the door and waited. Lucas then took the knife and stabbed Elizabeth twice in the throat. This was to make sure that she couldn't scream for help. Then to make double sure, he grabbed a pillow and put it over Elizabeth's face. From the other side of the door, Kim could hear her mother, gurgling and struggling to survive. Lucas then stabbed Elizabeth eight more times. As she struggled to fight off her attacker, Lucas put his whole body weight against the pillow to try and smother her. He sat like that for ten minutes to make sure that she suffocated. At one point, Kim went over to the bedroom to check on Lucas's progress. She reached her hand around the door but Lucas didn't grab it. Her own mother did. And when she realized it was her mother's, she knocked the hand away. Kim thought she could hear her mother saying, get off me, and Lucas yelled for her to shut the door. But instead of doing anything, Kim just let her die, not thinking for a second that her life should be spared. In fact, she watched as her mother thrashed and kicked, trying to fight Lucas off. Kim just sat on the ground and waited. She told Lucas to stay calm and everything would be over soon. This was not a quick and painless death, sadly. Lucas got up when Elizabeth stopped breathing and they knew she was dead. He checked her pulse to confirm. Then he went into the bedroom Kim and Katie shared. As she slept, Lucas violently stabbed Katie twice in the neck and then smothered her with a pillow. Kim could hear Katie say, get off me, I can't breathe, before she died. Katie was loudly trying to scream but nothing she tried to say was clear. 
She tried scratching at Lucas to get him off of her, but sadly the attack was fatal. Blood was spattered all over the bedroom walls, and the two decided to cover Katie's face with a white sheet because Kim didn't like the smell of blood. The pair had just murdered Kim's family, and somehow neither of them felt any shred of remorse. Kim said that neither of them felt bad at all, and they were, quote, laid back about the whole thing. And this is truly sick, but after they committed the murders, they took a bath together to wash off the blood, cuddled, and then had sex in the living room. I know. Then they settled down on the couch to eat ice cream and tea cakes and watch movies. They watched three whole movies from the Twilight Saga while the bodies just sat upstairs. The next day, Lucas and Kim were supposed to be at school, but they didn't go. And as a result, they were both reported missing. But the police and Lucas's aunt visited the Edwards home to try and find them. But each time they knocked on the door, they got no answer. Lucas's aunt also reported him missing as he failed to come home. Katie hadn't shown up for school and Elizabeth hadn't shown up for work, so they were reported missing too. The original plan to kill themselves after the murders had been abandoned. The two had painkillers and booze on hand to end their lives at 2 p.m. that day after the murders. But Kim said that she didn't like the smell of alcohol and that she didn't want to go through the pain. Instead, the two killers decided to unwind, relax, and watch the fourth Twilight movie. Kim and Lucas sat in the house for a day and a half while Katie and Elizabeth's bodies just sat there. Finally, at 12.15 p.m. on April 15th, police forced their way into the house through a downstairs window, and they found both Kim and Lucas inside. They asked Kim if she knew where her mother was, and she replied, upstairs. An officer asked what happened, and Lucas looked up at him dead in the eyes and replied, why don't you go up there and see? And so they did. They went upstairs, and they found Elizabeth's body still lying in her bed. The room was covered in blood. Then they found Katie's body also lying in the bed in the bloody room. The murder weapon, a 20-centimeter kitchen knife, was found in Kim's room. Elizabeth had defensive wounds, meaning she fought back against Lucas. Katie's body was also positioned in a way that suggested she had tried to move away from her attacker. The family's eight-month-old dog was found still inside the home. She was cowering in her crate and looked almost traumatized. The police said that both Lucas and Kim acted emotionless and indifferent about the fact that there were two bodies in the house. They were just chilling in complete lack of remorse. The only thing Lucas said was, fuck life. And Kim said, we were going to take them, referring to the box of medication. The two were immediately arrested and charged with murder. Elizabeth's boyfriend, Graham Green, turned up to the family home to find that Kim was being taken away in a police car. The police told him that both Katie and Elizabeth had been found murdered inside the home. Graham then called up Mary, and that's when she got the horrific news that her mother and sister had just been murdered. The police asked Mary to come down to the house in order to identify the bodies. None of it felt real. The whole drive over, Mary was telling herself that it wasn't her family. It just couldn't be. She was going to get there, and the bodies weren't going to be theirs. But everything became terribly real when she walked into the house. Mary knew immediately that her mother and sister were gone. She broke down when she realized that she was never going to see them again. The fact that the murder was committed with help from Kim was another shock to Mary's system. She said, quote, I knew my sister was unhinged. I just didn't think she was that unhinged. As you can imagine, the community was completely shocked by the news. Nobody could understand why anyone would want to hurt Elizabeth and an innocent 13-year-old girl. 
And at first, the public didn't know who was behind the murders. Initial reports stated that the suspects were two teenage boys. The police reached out to the public and asked that anyone who had seen something suspicious on Dawson Avenue come forward. The community was obviously panicked at the threat of more violence, but police assured them that this was an isolated and extremely rare event. Due to UK laws and because of their ages, their names were not released to the media until a judge approved it in 2017. However, Mary indicated on social media that Kim and her boyfriend were responsible for the killings on April 17th, and people were pretty quick to put the pieces together. After Kim and Lucas were hauled off to the police station, they were then separated and interrogated. They were also interviewed by police psychiatrists. And what they said on these tapes is truly shocking and disturbing. Lucas admitted to killing Katie and Elizabeth. He and Kim both described the murders in detail with an unsettling lack of emotion. Even the seasoned detective listening in on the interviews were completely stunned by what they were hearing. And we actually have some snippets of what they said. I went into her mom's room, stabbed her in the neck while she was asleep on her side, and smothered her face with a pillow. And um, after I knew she had gone, like, I went into Katie's room. Uh, I thought I heard her say, get off me, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, uh, then after about 10 minutes, Lucas put putting his weight on her. Um, like, she was, she was dead, like. Um, he was on top of her, um, uh, like, with a, like, pillow over her head, um, like, um, just, like, even though her, her voice but not was. Why? What was the reason for killing Katie? Because she had called the police. Okay. Is that the only reason? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, insane to hear them so nonchalantly talking about this. I mean, it just speaks to their mental mental state that they're completely detached from this whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting how they're both so like quiet with the way that they speak too. Yeah, the police psychiatrist, Doctor Joseph, actually described them at least Kim, as cheerful and inappropriately upbeat for the entire two-and-a-half-hour interview. It almost seemed like she was enjoying all the intention that she was getting from it. She even suggested that in the future she would like to write a book about her life. This is how Kim described planning the murder. Where did you think I'd to kill your family, to do it by a knife? to stab them in the throat, to have a bath afterwards, to commit suicide afterwards. Where's all this come from? Where, where's all this? Have you seen something like it? Have you read something like it? No, I just sat down by geometry. Because the voice box needs having um, the bath because of the dog. Uh, so she can swallow the news with us, so I can swallow the news. Um, yeah, and can you say that after? It's just most people who 
do commit murders trying to commit suicide themselves. So there's nothing that you'd seen, you'd read, or anything that gave you this sort of notion. Nobody discussed it with you. Mm-hmm. All your own doing. Just you and Lucas. And Kim truly showed no remorse for her actions. She told the police that she was happy and relieved that Lucas had killed her mother and her sister. This was her explanation as to why and what she thought when the murders were over. I was okay with um, just uh, the fact that it happened so quickly. But like gave me peace of mind because, like, you know, they were not, like, culture anything. And I did about it on reflection. Um, the same way. Not really, but it's done. Yeah. Yeah, happy about it. Um, to a point, yes. What's that? Um, yes, because women doesn't have to do with um, being, like, you know, suicidal and he doesn't wake up worrying every woman see if I'm still alive. Um, and my sister doesn't do very blue or heartbreak and, and like, and not even like. sick justification is that? It's truly wild to me that she describes it as quick and not like torture or anything like that. Because it's quite it's, the opposite of that. Yeah. It it took a while actually, and it it absolutely was torture. Um, but Lucas gave a very different explanation as to why they decided to kill Katie. And that reason was pretty simply because Katie would call the police once she found out that Elizabeth had been murdered. Kim's motive for killing her mother was a deep hatred and resentment that she had for her. This is what she told the psychiatrist. I wanted to get revenge for the way she treated me. I did it because I did not like mom at all. And I did not want her to ruin or corrupt anyone else. I did not feel anything for my mother. She deserved it, and I'm glad she's dead. The interview showed that she was more concerned about Lucas than she was about her own family. Here's another clip where Kim takes detectives through the murders. I went into the room going on because I've heard, like, coming since So pretty shocking to hear how she's much more concerned about Lucas than her own family, Um, just insane. So the police psychiatrists completed their evaluation on both Kim and Lucas, and they found that neither of them suffered from a recognized mental illness. They did find that Kim showed signs of a personality disorder. However, she could not be diagnosed with this until she was 18. Not to diagnose someone that I don't know, obviously, but I think what they mean by personality disorder is antisocial personality disorder, which is also known as sociopathy. But you can't diagnose someone with that until they're 18. But she fits a lot of the criteria. Let me read some of them. What book are you reading out of? The DSM-5. What's the DSM-5? Is this like the Bible for (laughs) psychiatry? (laughs) Kind of. Yeah, it stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. I mean, this is widely used for any mental health professional. It's how you diagnose Mm -hmm. people. And remind people why you have this. 
oh, I have this because I have a master's in um, counseling. So when I was going through my program, this was obviously one of the things that we had to use. And I also um, did an internship at a counseling practice. And obviously, I used this to diagnose clients. So I still have it. And I had to dust it off. Um, anyways, though, so some of the diagnostic features. It says the essential feature of antisocial personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others that begins in childhood or, or, or early adolescence and continues into adulthood. This pattern has also been referred to as sociopathy, like I said. For the diagnosis to be given, the individual must be at least 18 years old. So she's not 18. So I think that's probably why they couldn't give it to her. But um, a lot of it is impulsivity or failure to plan, irritability and aggressiveness, um, recklessness, disregard for safety of others, lack of remorse, um, as indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another, failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors, repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others to personal profit or pleasure. Mm. So... A lot of that is spot on. A lot of that is spot on. And I also think a lot of it's spot on for... uh, Lucas as for well. Lucas as yeah. well, yeah. Again, I don't know these people. This is just kind of my thoughts, but that's interesting. Sure does fit the uh, requirements. It seems minus the age. Mm-hmm. Is there any explanation for how this develops, or um, it just really depends? It can, it can actually um, be genetic. So it's more common among the first degree biological relatives of those with the disorder. So I don't know if maybe someone in her family had this disorder as well. Yeah, I don't know exactly like if there is a full reason. Like there's other personality disorders where you know like it's caused by trauma. Right, there's something that you can point to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, I'm not like super, I'm not an expert on antisocial personality disorder. But um, yeah, I would be interested to see what her like family tree looks like and if it runs mm-hmm. in her family at all um well think about her father you know yeah that's true there's a lot we don't know about him other than he was abusive to her mother right and uh does say within the family that has a member with antisocial personality disorder males more often have antisocial personality disorder and substance use disorders whereas females um more often have uh somatic symptom disorder which is something else so anyways yeah it's interesting when if you were to look at like her whole family and again I don't, I don't know anything about her family, but um, I yeah, it's my guess if it was to be something like um, borderline personality disorder, that's often caused by you know some type of very traumatic event or PTSD. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Again, I don't know that much about her, so just kind of an interesting thought because they yeah, were talking is. about how she has signs of it, and I'm like, yeah, that totally reminds me of antisocial personality disorder, but she's not 18. Yeah, that kind of adds up there. Yeah. Mm. Anyways. So both of them admitted to manslaughter, but not murder. Kim refused to plead guilty to those charges. Instead, she wanted to plead guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. But the court rejected this. So that meant that she was going to trial. Katie's father, Peter Edwards, attended the trial, as did Elizabeth's boyfriend, Graham. And it was reported that Kim and Lucas split up once they were in police custody. Mary attended every day of the trial. And what truly shocked her was Kim's complete lack of emotion. She sort of expected a lack of emotion when it came to her mother because everyone knew Kim always hated her. 
But the way Kim didn't show any emotion when it came to the murder of her sister, Katie, was truly disturbing. Mary is expecting at least some show of emotion, but Mary says that to this day, there is just still no remorse. And that made her very angry. It took everything in her not to jump over the fence during the trial and knock Kim's face off. That's a quote. But it gets even more disturbing. At one point, Mary looked over at Kim, and Kim had the nerve to flash her a smirk. Mary remembers, quote, she smirked at me as if to say, ha ha, and I just looked at her and had to go out. I felt sick. Lucas had pleaded guilty on the first day of the trial, but Kim did not. The trial lasted eight days in the Nottingham Crown Court, and the jury was made up of seven men and five women. The court heard how Kim and Lucas plan out the murders methodically and with no emotion. The prosecutor compared the couple to Bonnie and Clyde. Psychiatrists for both the prosecution and the defense testified. The defense's psychiatrist claimed that Kim had diminished responsibility for the murders because she was suffering from an adjustment disorder at the time. He said that this led her to lose her self-control. So what is adjustment disorder? Typically with adjustment disorder, it's some type of specific event that caused like some disruption or stress in someone's life within um, three months of the onset. So I was thinking like, what would those events have been? And they were arguing that, A, Lucas being expelled from school and then her attempting to take her own life, as well as the time when um, she got in a fight with her mom and then came home with, like, her... She she got in a fight and then came home with Kim already, like, bagging up her belongings and being, like, Mm -hmm. need to leave. Mm -hmm. So that's what they were kind of arguing, is that it made her feel like she didn't belong in the family and those were extremely stressful on her. And her mother had given some of her stuff to her sister. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So all those things combined, making her feel like she is not part of the family. She's unwanted. She has her boyfriend who she claims she's in love with and is closer to any closer to him than anyone else, getting expelled from school, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. So I think that's kind of the argument they made. Um, but apparently, for whatever reason, I mean, they said, you know, that that's not the case, which I thought was kind of interesting because it did seem like to me that that could be it. Um, so I don't know why they decided that that wasn't, mm. you know, actually something that applied to her. How but, does this um, help her case, though? This doesn't seem like that. If you can prove that someone has a mental illness, then you're much more likely to, you know, not be able to withstand trial or get off because it's not like she was in her right state of mind when she decided to commit these murders yeah they're fighting for diminished responsibility Mm -hmm. it's interesting though because adjustment disorder isn't that like uncommon and just because you have an adjustment disorder just absolutely not mean that you're all of a sudden out of your mind and you can't understand the consequences of killing people Mm -hmm. so even though yeah like let's say that they did diagnose her with that i don't know if that necessarily would have made a huge difference i think that she could have that and i don't know if that's necessarily the reason why she killed someone i'm not trying to you know defend her in any way um but, feel like it's reaching a little bit to just like they're trying to get anything they I, possibly can i mean to... they could right isn't that kind of the whole point of That's, the defense right? yeah is to mm-hmm. be able to try and pick apart any possible reason as to why someone could have done something and absolutely and run with it mm-hmm. so i don't know food for thought i guess as many of you may know we have a lot of pets at home 10 to be exact And with 10 pets, there's a lot of mess, a lot of stink, and the cats, we have three of them, can only imagine how much stink 
they produce. But that all ended when I started using Pretty Litter. Nothing beats Pretty Litter's ability to instantly trap odor. It's ultra absorbent, it's lightweight, low dust, which is great for my asthma, and one six pound bag works for up to a month without clumping. That means no more wasting litter. And what really gives me peace of mind about Pretty Litter and makes it truly unique is that its crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illnesses in my kitties, like urinary tract infections, kidney issues, and more. Because cats are pretty good at, you know, hiding how they feel. They usually just go and hide. So sometimes it's hard to know if something's up with their health. Well, this is a visible indicator that you get with Pretty Litter. And if that isn't enough reason to buy Pretty Litter, it ships free right to my door. I never have to run out and lug around those big tubs. I don't have all of these huge bags and boxes taking up space in my house. Plus, it eliminates those trips to the store to buy them. They just show up right at my door ready to go. Not only have I noticed that the stink has pretty much gone away, but I'm using far less litter than I did before, which ultimately saves me money. Plus, I'm able to keep an eye on my cat's health. Pretty Litter is by far the best litter I've ever used. You'll love it too. Go to prettylitter.com slash milehire and use code milehire to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash milehire. Code milehire to save 20% on your first order. prettylitter.com slash milehire. Use code milehire. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The defense also told the court to consider Kim's mental state. They showed one of her diary entries leading up to the killings that said, quote, help me. Death is the only way. Madness is in me. But the prosecution said Kim was just as guilty of murder as Lucas. Even though she didn't physically commit the crime, she helped plan it, gave the okay, and not once tried to stop it. I mean, she sat behind the door the whole time. She touched her mother's hand as she was being murdered. That's the most fucked up thing to think about. And didn't stop it. God. Also, killing your sister or mm-hmm. having your sister killed so that she wouldn't call 911. That's your reasoning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The police said that she was essentially, was basically the driver between the two. She was the, the driving force. As for the adjustment disorder, the prosecution psychiatrist disagreed with the diagnosis, but he said that even if Kim was truly suffering from an attachment disorder, like Janelle said, it wouldn't have impaired her ability to make rational choices and understand the consequences of her actions. He said that someone with an attachment disorder might lash out and have outbursts, but they wouldn't meticulously plan out a murder for a week. On October 10th, Lucas pled guilty to murder. Once the trial concluded, it took the jury just two and a half hours to reach their verdicts. On October 18, 2016, Kim Edwards was found guilty of the murders of Elizabeth and Katie Edwards by a unanimous verdict. On November 10th, 2016, both Kim Edwards and Lucas Markham were sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 20 years. They are Britain's youngest ever double murderers and some of the youngest killers in the UK. And as you can imagine, this case sent shockwaves through the UK. It seemed totally incomprehensible that two kids could be capable of such cold, calculated, and horrifically violent acts. And knowing that her sister was behind the killings is something that's very difficult for Mary to live with. I can't even imagine. She said it's horrible. In my head, there will always be unanswered questions. There's always like, why Katie? Why did you need to kill Katie? And I don't think I'll ever find peace. And of course, both Kim and Lucas appealed their sentences and they were successful. Their sentences were reduced to just 17 and a half years on June 9th, 2017. They are currently in the seventh year of their sentence, meaning they will be released when they are both in their 30s. What are your thoughts on this? And since these 
two were minors when they committed the crime. Do you think that reducing your sentence is justified for being so young? Or do you think that, you know, there should be no different treatments just because of your age? I don't honestly, it's it's tough to say. Uh, it's such a complex issue. I've always struggled with minors who commit such violent crime. I do think that when you're under the age of 18, you shouldn't be tried as an adult. I've kind of always stuck with that. Really? Even if it's a brutal crime like this? Yeah, because you're not an adult. And your brain is well, not if developed. Your brain's not developed till you're 25, though. Yeah, that's the I thing. mean, that's true. <sighs> like I said, it's a very layered issue i don't know what the right answer is um i do believe in rehabilitation i don't think the two of them should spend the rest of their lives in prison but 17 years is i don't know if that's enough it's really tough i don't have super established opinions on this to really? be honest yeah it's case I, by I've, case for you kind of I don't know. Even I, in this case, I, I, what I see here is two cold-blooded killers that have shown zero remorse whatsoever, mm-hmm. enjoyed the fact that they did it. I see two dangerous individuals that getting out in their 30s, I would be worried for, for the, the public. Do you think they'd be capable of killing again? Or yes. do you think that this was just a one-time like crime of passion and she hated her family, but isn't necessarily prone to like committing other murders? Yes, 100%. I don't think you can say with any certainty that they wouldn't commit other violent acts. I mean, and we don't know where their mind mind frame is. They could be like, "Oh, this is a good deal for us. We're going to get out in our 30s and, you know, no, what's that's, what's that's their a good point. okay, and and think about this. What's their chances of actually turning their life around as as convicted killers in this infamous case? They're going to be known everywhere. Their life is not going to be normal after they get out. And what what stops them from getting back together and going and doing more crime? Do you think you know? The murderers can be rehabilitated? No. I think if you murder somebody, it's over. You took somebody's life, you forfeit yours. That's my my opinion on it. Might be might be strong, but even in in cases of children, I mean, I just covered Nicholas Browning. He's 15 years old. He brutally executed his entire family for money and because his dad was strict on him. And he he's actually somebody who is seems like a you know, he's kind of turned his life around. He's, he seems like he probably could be a product. He's a smart, really smart kid. He got his MBA in prison and like, yeah, he could probably get released and go on and have a normal life. But does he deserve that? No. In my opinion, he took the lives of his two younger brothers too, who are just kids, murdered them for no reason, murdered his mother, murdered his father. I think at that point you, you forfeit the, the, the ability to ever live a normal life again. So are you saying that like even if yeah in theory you could be rehabilitated you don't even deserve the chance to do that? No. I disagree. No. You should be I mean I don't know. I mean, I don't disagree for all cases, but I I just I don't see where's the evidence that rehabilitation works? I don't see it there. I don't see it out there. There is no what it, there what's the rehabilitation program and what's the guarantee on that? There's a case out of Canada, Vince Lee. He oh, he had yeah. a, he went absolutely berserk on a Greyhound bus and literally oh God, that case is so brutalized brutal. this man, mm-hmm. ripped his heart out, ate it. They put him in uh, a mental institution, rehabilitated him, and released him. And now he's just out living a, a free life in this 
poor family who this man brutalized has to live with the fact that this guy is out there forever. I could not imagine being able to go to sleep at night knowing that the, this evil individual, whether they were in their right mind or not, is out there. And, and just knowing that they had a mental illness, which they said they actually fixed like the canadian government was like we fixed this guy he's good to go we've cleared him he's passed all of our things he's not sick anymore released him out in the public no restrictions no oversight he's out there somewhere and as a as a family member of somebody brutally murdered like this i could not ever find peace again knowing that that individual's out there free as a bird period yeah, i see what you're saying i think as people, as human beings, we want to believe that people can change. We want to believe that people can be rehabilitated and that's like the good in us. But I think the, the, the reality is, is that that happens so little that ultimately, is it worth it? And also, I think as the family of the murdered individual, you should have the choice. I don't agree with that at all, though. Like, I think I would never want to put that on the family uh, that, that burden but of, that's like, what the family out. wants but that's what what if the family's like that's what i want i want them behind. they go to the parole hearing and they're like you let this person out i will hunt them down and kill them myself that's how most i've i've rarely ever seen in a number of cases that i i've covered that are extremely brutal where a family member has been like i'm okay with this individual being released out of prison Almost 99.9% .9 of the time, they're like, please, begging the parole board, do not release this individual. Doesn't matter if they're a good good person now. Doesn't matter if they're, you know, they're religious and they, they're a good prisoner and all this. I cannot physically put my head down on my pillow at night knowing that this person is out there. Do you feel this way about all crimes in general or just extremely violent crimes where the person is showing violent, no signs of remorse? Violent crime where you are, mm. whether it's... Some type of sexual assault. I think people like that who sexually assault other people, same thing. Because, and even worse for those guys, because those guys have a repeated pattern of reoffending, like it's off the charts that they, they reoffend. So those guys are just don't even, don't but, even okay, give them let's, a chance. Let's simplify things here because this is a very broad, very controversial discussion. But in the case of children, people under the age of 18, do you think? There should you you don't think they should be tried? What if they're five? Yeah, what yeah, and there are some really young killers out there. I mean, how many of those cases are there though of like a five year old killing somebody? I mean, there's cases of people under ten. I well, here's the thing too, is I when it's premeditated murder, mm -hmm. that's that's what I'm specifically talking about. If we're talking about manslaughter and other circumstances where say you killed somebody in your car and maybe you were, you were recklessly driving and you end up killing somebody in your car. I think that, I think that that is, is, is a different situation to some extent. I do think that those people should be, if you kill anybody that you're forfeiting your life at that point. And if you are lucky enough to get paroled out eventually that that's a different scenario because that was a isolated event. There was no premeditation to that that killing. Do you think it really is a case by case situation, though? 
I mean, when there's a child who kills an abusive parent and is found guilty, should they be, should they go spend the rest of their lives in prison? Or um, someone who kills their sexual abuser? Yeah. I mean, this is, like I said, it's a very, you can't just no, I'm not, lay a I'm blanket not, down. I'm not you know, laying it's... a blanket down. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm talking about premeditated killers. People that premeditate Okay, so someone beforehand. who premeditated to kill their abuser. They pay the price. They 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 have to face the punishment. That is that is the law of the land. Otherwise there'd be way there'd be far more killings that go on. I completely disagree. I think it should be a case by case basis. I'm not saying that they should be locked away forever. I'm just saying that they sh they should do the time that's associated with the crime. That's all I'm saying. Well, that's what's that happening in this case. So in, 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 in those particular cases, my guess is that likely the charges are different than first-degree murder. I'm specifically talking about individuals that are charged and found guilty of first-degree murder. I'm not talking about manslaughter. I'm not talking even necessarily about second-degree murder because there's differences, right? So I'm talking about those that premeditate, whether you're a child, whatever. If you premeditate to kill somebody, that's, that's a major issue that I don't think you can rehabilitate somebody from that Do you think there point. should be... A process where they attempt to rehabilitate and they it's heavily evaluated and then decided on based on yeah it'll never that happen point. never happen sure i'd be open to it but that will never happen in the, in the current system oh that in the right they don't do it and and the and the thing that i've seen too is when you talk about the uk and their criminal justice system in, in canada is even more lenient than i would say even the uk is like the canadian government's got this very progressive way of looking at criminal justice and rehabilitation and they do that quite a bit for 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 murderers and what you see is that maybe those people don't necessarily go out and commit further murders but it's the victim's family that's who i'm empathizing with i'm empathizing with the victim's family that they are extremely upset that the canadian government would let the killer of their loved one out and that that's where I, I think it's the victims, those impacted by the murder, the ones that ultimately should choose, in my opinion. It's only fair. It's only fair. They took somebody from you. Therefore, you should be responsible for what happens to them. But see, everyone feels so differently. Like I just covered a case, Mackenzie Sharilla. She killed, she's 19 years old. She killed her two friends, ran her car into a wall, killed both of them. And one of their fathers was very adamant that he doesn't feel like her life should be ruined, that she should be able to, you know, be rehabbed and come back into society. And it just completely depends on the person that you talk to. Every victim's family out there has such a different... So the victim that died's father said yeah. this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, there were other people speaking out too that felt opposite of him. So how do you how do you deal with it in a case where there's multiple families or different family members have different opinions. And how do you regulate that? Cause we're talking about the court system here. You can't, are we just going to say, well, that's why you, well, can't, the victim's you family can't go gets case to decide by case. what happens. You can't go pay case by case. That's why there's a lot. There's why there's but that's contradicting what you just said that you think the victim's family should be able to decide. Yeah. Then that's the case by no, case. I, they should decide, but they, they have to do it within the confine of the law. They have to do it. They can go to the parole board, 
when they go to parole, they can make their case for what whichever yes, way they, they feel. Yeah. They could they have a say in it, but ultimately it comes down to the parole board. The parole board decides whether that individual gets out or not. I mean, that's the way the system works. And I think I think you're you're gonna run into a lot of issues if you start claiming people are rehabilitated or have been cured of their mental illnesses and release them back into society. And we already we already release a lot of criminals that are not necessarily violent killers that reoffend. I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at the rate at which people reoffend, it's it's extremely high. But there so, is also many people that have been rehabilitated and and right. leave prison a much better person and have learned from their mistakes and you don't think there should be that chance at all. And I'm not, not arguing a, for these two. I mean, not if you're not if you're a convicted killer. Not if you're a convicted killer and you committed premeditated homicide. I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I think it's so complicated that I don't even feel because that person, the person you killed, doesn't get their it. life back. Obvi- obviously not. So, like, that's my thing is that it's not fair to the victim who had their life cut short that you then get to go live your life. So, for example, Nicholas Browning, he was 15 years old when he committed these murders. He he planned these out. He told his friends that he was planning. He wanted to kill his dad. He ends up sneaking into his dad's house late at night. His dad's sleeping on the couch. Shoots his dad. Was waiting for his family to come downstairs because he thought they'd hear the gunshot. They don't come downstairs, so he then proceeds upstairs. Kills his mother who was sleeping. Kills his two younger brothers sleeping. And then he, he was 15 years old and this kid was super mature for his age too. He, he had the detectives, you know, they knew what was up, but he was adamant that he didn't do it, had no remorse. And yeah, he got two life sentences without the chance of parole. And I think that is a fair punishment. So what do you think is a fair punishment for these two? Life in prison, no parole. Wow. Don't do you think, think that, that today. Kim know. and Lucas should have the same sentence, even though she, she didn't actually, she wasn't the one to actually stab them? Yeah, because I think she's she's dangerous. She's a dangerous individual. The fact, I do think that having remorse is is a big thing and should go a long way. When you show no remorse and you say the things that she said, mm-hmm. that's very concerning to me. I do agree with you there. And maybe if if I'm not being so harsh, maybe she has an opportunity, you know, 20 years, 30 years later, later in life to potentially parole and be, you know, supervised and something Mm -hmm. like that. But I think she's a dangerous individual. In fact, she's she's smiling in court. She's laughing. She reminds me a lot. And I think we'll mention this here in a minute. But she reminds me a lot of Myra Henley Mm -hmm. and Ian Brady. And if you know anything about the Moore's murders. Ian did all the killings, as far as we know. Myra was there, though. And she, she's almost as bad as he is, if not just as bad. So, because I, I don't think you necessarily need to be the one doing the killing to be evil. No, I think I, don't you, think I think that. it's almost more evil to not do anything to stop it and to be right there and to, to listen to especially your loved ones be murdered. That, to me, is almost more evil than Lucas committing the murders. Yeah, I mean, Graham Greene does not believe that the two should be let out. In fact, he said that Kim was the next Myra Hindley. That um, The fact that he said that, yeah, that's very concerning. That's a red flag. That means she, and, and based on 
her tapes, if you go listen to Myra Henley's tapes, huge similarities there. It's it's honestly chilling. Yeah, he believes that if Kim is let out, that she will kill again. Um, Mary, her sister, is also very angry about the sentences being reduced. She already thought that the original sentence was not was uh, too light to begin with. So, yeah, I mean, I I definitely take her her into account. And again, I don't think that that sentence is long enough. I just don't think that life in prison is necessarily the answer, that you just lock someone up forever, especially when they are minors when committing the crime. I think it's a very, very complicated um, well, how would you issue feel, that needs to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. How would you two feel if one of your, your family members was murdered by somebody, they served time, maybe they did 20 years, it was a brutal crime, they're released, there's no restrictions on their release. And one day you're you're in the supermarket shopping and you turn down an aisle and all of a sudden you're face to face with the person that brutally murdered your loved one. How would you feel? I honestly don't even know if I feel like I have the right to even say like how would I feel because I, I really just have no ability to right. even comprehend that. And mm-hmm. so I just I don't think it's my it's my right to be like, I would be mad. Of course I'd be mad. But like, I, I, don't, I don't know what that's like. And I don't feel like that's fair to mm-hmm. try and pretend as if I even have a remote idea of what that would yeah, be like. I truly don't think unless you actually went through something like that, that you would have any concept for it. And everyone does feel so differently. Um, to go back to the Mackenzie Sherla case, the victim's father actually specifically said that her entire life being ruined the way that his son's was or taken uh, would not make him feel any better. You know, so I think those opinions are just not everyone feels the same. And therefore, I don't want to well, yeah, it's, say it's how your, I would it's feel. It's your own personal beliefs, because some people believe that you forgive those that wrong you, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a big... Yeah, we've covered cases where victims, loved ones have been like, mm-hmm. I forgive that person's murderer. And it, it actually helps them mm-hmm. to be able to move on. Um, so I do think that the victims, you know, saying it should should matter um i just i don't know if i feel comfortable saying either way what my my beliefs when it comes to this stuff are not super concrete because every case is so different and i don't think there is necessarily a right answer i think that's a fair judgment cases you know yeah and i'm not saying there's a right answer either i'm what i'm saying is that i believe when a victim says is is mad because the killer sentence has been reduced. I think that's a problem. I do agree with that. Yes, and if it will make the loved their loved ones feel better knowing that that person's never going out of prison again, or is going to get a you know is going to end up on death row. I think that's that's the way they should go because ultimately it's they're the ones impacted by it the most. So why shouldn't they be the ones that determine? That? I don't think that's fair to put the burden on someone like that. Well, if they want it, why not? If they ask for it, they're like, that's what I want. They're literally vocalizing it. I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that's the system. I'm just saying mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. and especially in this particular case. It's tough. It's, it's really tough. I definitely want to hear all of your thoughts on this. Um, kind of some of the things that we've gone over here, but I don't know if there is necessarily a right answer. It's really difficult. Um, but both Kim and Lucas's legal teams fought hard to keep their names from being revealed to the public. But since the judge reduced their sentences, he allowed them to be named. 
And he also allowed the release of their shocking interview tapes, which we played some of that today. Yeah. Anyway, um, Elizabeth's beloved dog, Bell, was rehomed. Both Katie and Elizabeth Edwards are dearly missed, and their family and friends will never forget their smiles and upbeat attitudes. Both of them had full lives ahead of them and plans. Yeah. And sadly, their lives were senselessly cut short. It's just so incredibly unnecessary. For Here's what? A, For what? I know. For nothing. Absolutely nothing. For nothing. That's really so, fucking sad. Especially the way that it happened. Got it 13 years old, to be stabbed in your bed. It's just unimaginable. Um, here's a video of friends remembering the victims. She was very thoughtful. Um, she understood how she could help people. She didn't just turn up. She was, she was there and thinking about what was needed. It's a very, very sad day. I mean, the school is absolutely devastated. And, and the total neighborhood, the community, it's a, such a tight knit community here. Um, and I think everybody's just gobsmacked. They're just speechless, really. Well, I'm definitely curious to hear what all you out there think should have or what would have been a appropriate sentence for the two of them. I will say that I think it should be longer than 17 years. Um, I think something closer to 30 and then reevaluate at that point, but a, a minimum of 30. Oh, makes more sense to me. But with their mental state and the lack of remorse, I do think it's possibly a threat to society. But again, could that be reevaluated after a minimum 30, 35, 40 years is served, something like that? I don't know. It's it's really tough. I, I, I would, in this case, I'd side with the victim's family here. I'd go with whatever they want. Yeah, which we don't know exactly what Kim they want wanted. Them in, if they want them in life or... Or in prison for life, I'd I'd fully support that one hundred percent. That she hasn't said because ultimately they're they're the they're the ones that have to live with this every single day. Mm -hmm. And if that's what's going to make them feel some you know tiny bit better, then I think that's that's the right thing to do. Yeah, it would be interesting to hear from Mary specifically what she thinks an appropriate sentence for these two would be, what she would like to see. Um, I think I'd be she curious to know. I think she was looking for her life because she said that the original sentence was too light to begin with. So I think she was probably looking for life in prison. Is my guess? Well, that's a guess. I'm not, we're not sure. I don't know how she feels about it, but yeah, sick. Yeah, it's very disturbing. Also, do you think that their ages should factor in, or should they have been tried as adults? Want to hear from you? This one's really tough. Mm-hmm. We'll leave you with that. Mm -hmm. we'll see you guys next week but until then keep on taking your mind a mile higher